0: Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. We've been going through and looking at the bronze labor, what it means, and how it is the gateway to communion with God, to move from a place of courtyard wonderings and the courtyard superficial Christianity to the place of intimate communion with the Lord that's symbolic and symbolized by going into the holy place covered by the badger skins that we've studied over and over again, time and again through going through this. We've talked about the fact that worship is the priority and communion with God is the priority and that must precede serving our God. It is an outflow. We've talked about the fact that if you build the wall without first being in the tabernacle that it leads to casualties and it leads to useless work that's only gonna be rewarded in this life and not in the next. There was a very good reason why they rebuilt the temple before they rebuilt the wall that surrounded the city. They did it in that order. And the bronze labor has everything to do with that. We wanna be not believers that are characterized by the courtyard wanderings, but Believers are characterized by communion with God. And we've gone through there and looking at the fact that as we go into and pass beyond the labor, and the labor is certainly the Word of God, and we respond to what we hear there in obedience and repentance and faith, and we move into the place of communion, the expectation is there, and we talked about it. Transcendent joy, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Big time joy, love, peace, um, unwavering hope. These wonderful things. The fruit of the Spirit really is enjoyed there. But in the midst of all of that, fruit of the Spirit. And in the midst of all of that, um, we have seen from the Scriptures that we can expect suffering. Suffering in the place of communion. It seems strange to us, but it doesn't strange to the Bible. We just read a while ago that the Lord said, Think it not strange when these things happen to you. Don't be derailed or thrown by it. Don't, 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 don't look at it and say, Boy, this just casts down on love, his care. Maybe it's, he's apathetic and he doesn't, um, doesn't want to do anything about it. Or maybe if he does want to do anything about it, maybe he's not capable of doing anything about it. Um, or maybe he just doesn't care at all. None of that's true. And the Apostle Paul, um, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul said out loud, didn't he? He said, When they had preached the gospel to that city, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We're told in the Scriptures out loud, not just in some obscure places, where you just go, Ah, it's a little bit of God's Word, but we're told all over the God's Word that this is to be expected in the Christian life. We read two passages a while ago that speak to just that in regard to what we just prayed over. We learn in Philippians, like we talked about last week, that God not only has granted us eternal life and salvation, but as Brian observed, thought it was a wonderful observation that just as surely as He grants salvation, He grants suffering. Puts it on the same level. gift you with salvation and I gift you after that with suffering. Wow. And then, that's the revelation. The illustration we saw last week, and we used three Bible characters, but there are plenty enough of them. We could have picked many. And of course, we had to use Jesus because all suffering uh, flows from His when it's redemptive. And we saw that on the road to Emmaus, when He He came upon the two disciples who were downtrodden in the aftermath of His crucifixion, and he said, listen, let me tell you what the New Testament, the Old Testament says. And it's talking about me. And it says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered and then to enter into his glory? It's there all along. He's saying that to us today, too. When it happens to you, don't don't, it's it's predicted. I mean, here it is. It, it's, it's already there. So don't think it's strange. And then it happened with Peter. As well, we read the account uh, certainly where Peter was restored by our Lord and asked him in Acts, I mean, John 21, and he turned around to him and the Lord said, "You know what? When you were little, people carried you where you didn't want to go. When, uh, or when you were little, you went where you wanted to go. when you get old, somebody carries you where you don't want to go." He said, "You're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna be martyred. You're gonna die for your faith. And um, this is what you got to look forward to. This is what's going to happen to you. And surely he did." And then we saw the example of Paul when he was converted in Acts chapter 9. Ananias comes to him and God's commission to Ananias was, Ananias, I want you to go and tell him the things he must suffer for my name's sake. Um, He came to tell him, honestly, here's what you can expect. This is what you've gotten into. I've grabbed you. I've grabbed a hold of you. And the future glory that you're going to enjoy with me one day is going to be preceded by suffering. It's going to be preceded by suffering. Not suffering that comes at angry people, and not the suffering that comes at the hands of sinners, not suffering that comes at the hands of the government, not the suffering that comes at the hands of an evil administration, not the suffering that comes at the hands of all those places. Suffering that comes at the hands of your Abba Father. The quote we gave last week: who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear. And not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. This is the plan for God's people. To deliver us up as Christ was delivered up. Not just so He can uh, make life miserable for us here, but so that He can work through our suffering to display the only suffering that ever meant salvation for anybody. And that was the suffering of our Lord on Calvary's hill. Hallelujah. And we talked about that. Now we're going to look at the application. What is the application? What do these things mean? How are we to respond? Here it is in one sentence: patient endurance through the presence, prayers, and power of the Holy Spirit. There it is: patient endurance through the presence, prayers and power of the Holy Spirit. That's the application. Revelation, you're going to suffer. It's going to come at the hands of God. Illustration, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and you and me as believers. Application, patient endurance through the presence, prayers, and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go look at a couple of places where we're going to see this. Look at little Romans chapter 5. I'm very familiar with this, I'm sure. For uh, most of the brothers here who've been in Roman study, we've been through this before. And uh, But we're going to go through it this morning and look at the character and nature of this suffering. What is to come? What does it mean? Why? How does God use it? And what is the provision for us to patiently endure? Look at. Five, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. As we begin to celebrate the doctrine of justification, which means that that through repentance and faith in Christ and trusting in His finished work, as God accomplished it through His death, burial, and resurrection, we have been declared not guilty. When the gavel comes down, uh, when it's all said and done, the gavel has already come down, and God's declaration for those who are in His Son is innocent of all charges. Hallelujah. And as we begin to celebrate that, that means that we have peace with God. We were once God's enemies. And now, through God's Son, He's made us, his children we're no longer enemies anymore as a matter of fact the bible says in romans chapter 8 god is for us whereas before in adam he was against us now he's for us now now as we grow in our understanding of the glories of that what is the means by which god accomplishes growth in the spiritual realm and it's through tribulation it's through trials it's through suffering Therefore, if we have a proper biblical understanding of the necessity and the purpose of tribulations in our lives, and we begin to understand what's behind them, then we cannot help but rejoice. I just have to tell you, I know that this can sound uncaring and maybe callous, but I'm really excited for Pastor Bruce. I mean that, because the only thing that stands to come from this is good. There is nothing bad that's going to come from this in the whole scheme of things. Maybe it's isolated incidents that will be bad. But in the whole scheme of things, God is working for the good. Hallelujah for that. Now, once we begin to understand that, we rejoice in them. The glory, do you see it in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, when it says, We glory in tribulations. You know what that word means? It's, it's, it's translated from... The same word they use in 5.2 and 5.11, and it literally means to rejoice. It can also be translated in some of our versions with the word exalt. And you know what that means? To leap for joy and to be extremely joyful. He's saying, you know what? We need to leap for joy over all the tribulations that come our way. That sounds foolish. But it's not foolish when we begin to understand and appropriate by faith the reason for it. And there is a reason. First, let's look at the definition of the word tribulations. Look what it says. We glory in tribulations. The English word is translated from a Greek word that means pressure. It means pressure. It carries with it the idea of squeezing an olive or a grape in order to extract the juice that's within it. So then, okay, well, how can we rejoice when we're in the middle of pressure? By knowing, K-N-O-W-I-N-G, what it produces. What's the first thing? Perseverance. The word perseverance is translated from a word that means to live under something or to remain under or to patiently endure. It means this. It means to remain firm Under pressure. To be steady when under pressure. It means to hang in there under difficult circumstances as opposed to trying to wiggle out from under them. Patient endurance in the midst of the pressures he talks about here in the form of difficult circumstances is the environment in which character is developed. Look what it says. Tribulation, the pressure from without, produces perseverance. Perseverance means we're going to patiently endure the trial. We're not going to try to wiggle out from under it. Change our circumstances or or miss God in the middle of circumstances we cannot change. What comes from that is proven character. And that's the best translation of that and it's probably in some of your translations is the phrase proven character. It means the idea of a tested veteran. It means character that has been through the hard times and come out the other end and been purified by the trial, not quelled. It is character that is tested and it's found to be real through patient endurance under trial. The term was used in regard to the testing of precious metals in order to determine their purity. In Proverbs chapter 17 verse 3, The Bible says the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. When you put a precious metal in a refining pot, a flame is lit beneath in order to heat up the contents. As the heat begins to rise, the impurities rise to the top. And as they rise to the top, then they're scraped off So that you can have the pure metal within. The issue is, though, if you really know what you're doing, if the heat is too hot, it'll damage the good stuff. So as the craftsman carefully manages the flame and scrapes off the dross or the impurities from the top, when does he know his job is complete? When he can look down and see his own reflection. Our gracious and sovereign Lord carefully manages the flame in our lives in order to arrive at the desired outcome. And that is to remove the impurities and see His glorious reflection there. The Holy Spirit is managing the flame. He turns it up enough to get the bad stuff out. Sometimes it seems hotter than we can stand. And sometimes it is hotter than we can stand. But He manages the flame just right because we want to get the job done right. Conversely, if it's too low... It leaves it in there. Dear ones, the intensity of the flame and the longevity of the flame is sovereignly ordained and dictated by our Abba Father. It will be as, he, as hot as He determines it to be and it will be as long as He determines it to be. What's His objective? Well, this is the whole point. If I know His objective, then I can move beyond resenting the means by which He accomplishes it. You hear it? If I know His objective, I can start moving beyond my resentment, potentially, for the means by which He's accomplishing it. If I know there's good out there coming from this, and you know what the good is? The good is is as good as it can get, and it's Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Be it like our Savior. Job said it this way in Job 23.10. He knows the way that I take. Why? Because He's managing the flame. He knows the way that I take. And when He has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The Lord knows the way we take because He's sovereign over it. You know what? It's not a matter of if He tests me but rather when. And when He does, we will come forth as gold. This proven character produces hope. That's the next word. Look at it in Romans 5.3. And not only that, we also glory, you could put in your notes, we jump up and down and, and, and go crazy in exuberant joy over the pressures that come our way knowing that those pressures are going to produce perseverance. And that perseverance, hanging in there, is going to produce character. And that character is the ground for my hope. It's been said before that you can live 40 days without food. You can live four days without water. You can live four minutes without air. But you cannot live four seconds without hope. It's the truth. This is why people do nasty things to themselves and others around them. It's because of hopelessness. Hopelessness. And do we live in an age like that or not? It's a carnal way of looking at it. But they tell us now, for the first time in America, parents no longer believe that their children are going to have it better than they had it. As a matter of fact, they believe they're going to have it worse. Hopelessness. Oh, but we have a hope that's anchored. And it's an assured outcome. You remember we talked about this word hope. This word hope is confidence in an assured outcome. Something that is going to happen. And you know what that is? It's found in 1 John 3, verse 2. And it's this. We shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is first John 3: 3, three goes on to say everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure so this hope this false this is the hope that he speaks of in romans five two it's the hope of the glory of God that we'll share in one day and what we learn here is this that hope is not weakened by tribulation to the contrary it is strengthened through tribulation it is strengthened through tribulation the confidence that we will be like jesus in the future makes us all the more motivated through the holy spirit within us to be as much like him as possible right now and our loving god uses tribulation to accomplish it so christ likeness is his motivation tribulation is, is his method, then we got to figure that we ought to be able to rejoice in it. If his motivation is, I want you to be like my son, let me ask you this, what greater thing could God do for you and me than to make us like his son? Is there anyone that he's more proud of than his son? This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. What the Bible saying in Colossians about him. God pleased, it was pleasing in him, That the fullness of the Godhead would dwell in Him in bodily form. Every good thing that comes our way comes from a good God. And every good thing derives from His character and His nature. He doesn't just give good gifts in redemption and the sanctification that follows our redemption. He gives us Himself. Himself. I don't know of a greater gift than that. Stack up all the new cars and houses that you can stack up. There's nothing wrong with new cars and there's nothing wrong with new houses. But I'm here to tell you, that's a puny thing. That's an insignificant nothing thing compared to likeness. The internal peace that comes within by being at peace with God and as a result of it, walking in the peace of God. You see what happens in tribulation? Tribulation takes us to places where you wouldn't expect God's love to be. And then you're delightfully surprised when you get there and you find out that God's love is every bit as present and more so in the tribulation than in the state you were in before you thought it might be threatened. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. He went through all the suffering he went through. And you only found out? He got there to the worst of places, being rejected, insulted, and all the things that go along with it. You know what he said for us? I found God's love there. I found it right there. As a matter of fact, I understand it better now in the place of tribulation than I understood when I thought things were going my way. I've come to know and believe him now in ways I never would have before. Thank God for the tribulation. If it had been up to me, I wouldn't have had it, I wouldn't have had it. I told one of my children the other day, I said, you know what, I think you're going to go through a hard time and this hard time is good for you. And this child, who will remain generic, said, well, I'd rather God do it some other way. And I thought, how many times have I said that to the Lord? Boy, God, I'd rather you do it another way. If you could just do it another way. If that doesn't illustrate the temptation that we want to get out from under it, we want to persevere, we want to, God, I tell you what, let me help you. Boy, the moment you start doing that, You have just made a serious mistake. God says, Will you please quit trying to help me make you like me? Quit! Let me do it. And you'll come to know if you'll patiently endure it. My plan was superior to yours. So we got the tribulation produces proven character, proven character. I mean, perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Why? Because hope doesn't disappoint. Because what? The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What does it mean? It just means that we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But patient endurance through trials is when we become filled with the Holy Spirit. And then when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, it's only then that we begin to come to understand just a little bit about the love of God. You know, we've said time and again, guys, you're here in the Roman study with us, everybody, everybody is the object of God's love. When you come to repentant faith in Christ, you become the recipient of God's love. But when you patiently endure under trial, you begin to understand God's love. That's it. That's it. That's what he was saying. I went... To the worst place I thought I could go and found out God's love was there. He was right with me. We just read it a while ago. Forty people have conspired to kill me. and said they're not going to eat or drink anything until they kill me. And I found out the Lord stood with me before I learned that. And I found the love of God was right there even when there was a price on my head like that. I found the love of God right there. I found the strength of God. I found the substance of God. And I found hope. Alright, so we've got the power of the Holy Spirit inside us. The presence of the Holy Spirit and let's go to Romans chapter 8. We have the prayers of the Holy Spirit. Oh, this wonderful work of the Holy Spirit right here that's taught, that's spoken of. Look what it says. Let's back up to verse 18 of chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also would be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only that, But we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. And even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What does that mean? Well, there's a boatload full of truth there. But here, I want to focus this morning on this part. The Bible speaks right there that we and creation are groaning right now as a prelude to our future glory. Even the creation itself is experiencing birth pains right now, and all the turmoil that goes on in the natural order. But that, that redemption won't take place, and glorification won't take place until ours does. That precedes it. And creation knows. They're waiting for us to be enjoy our future glory because creation will enjoy its future glory after that. After we enjoy it. We'll be like Christ in His presence. But look what it says in verse 26. The Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. What are our weaknesses? What are our weaknesses? Well, you know what? I can You can write a book on mine. But our weaknesses can be summed up in this. will not you listen to this now? our weakness can be summed up in this. It's our fleshly tendency to put up resistance to our suffering, to restrain the suffering and or to to retreat from it. It is our fleshly tendency to restrain the suffering, to put up resistance to it and or to retreat from it, to cut and run. Now, I'm going to give you a natural way that works out and a healthy way that works out. For example, if, if Brian came up here and walked up to me and kind of in a fast fashion, a fast feather method, he came quickly, how about that? If he came quickly up here and took his left hand and started to give me a left hook, I would naturally put up my arm and try to resist that. If I trip on one of these cords, and I walk across and I trip on one of these cords, which is highly likely, just before I hit the concrete and mess up my head, what am I going to do? I'm going to immediately. I've got, an inst- I've got an instinct to do that. Those are God-given instincts. Those are good instincts to keep from busting your head. Alright? But just like everything else, we take what's God's given and we abuse it in the flesh. And this is what it is. Think of that. Think of that, that we do those things. Now let me tell you what the flesh does with that. In fallen flesh, we can be influenced by those same instincts to escape and or avoid the suffering that comes our way in this life as a prelude to future glory. So just as surely as we try to protect ourselves from falling by tripping over that cord in the flesh, I can use those same instincts to a non-godly way, a non-godly extreme, to protect myself from the suffering that God's led me in, to resist. Did you know, in the flesh, I can also do that with somebody else. I can also do that with somebody else. Oh, you know, don't down. You need to resist. You need to escape. The pressure's too hard. It's too high. The, the, hey, God, that's that's radical forgiveness. That's too much. That's too much. The pressures, the heat's turned on too much. You can't do that. And what do we do? All we're doing is telling people to use their flesh to, to take those God-given instincts and use them in a sinful manner to escape and avoid the suffering that He ordained for them to go through in order to make them like His Son. You better be careful, and so should I. Now I'm going to tell you where we can see this. This is perfectly illustrated in the life of our Savior of all things when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed in the middle of great distress. His distress was so great in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was greater than any man had ever experienced or ever will experience. Because he knew this, that everything that is hated by God and worthy of His wrath and judgment, my sin and yours, was about to be placed on him. And the full measure of the wrath of God was going to be poured out on him. He knew of God's hatred for sin because He's God incarnate and He hates it too. And He also knew of the wrath it deserves because it was His wrath He was about to experience. And because He knew that, He sweat drops of blood. Look at Mark chapter 14. Look at Mark chapter 14. Thirty-two, verse 32 and 34. 32 to 34. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. And He took Peter, James, and John with Him. And He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And He said to Him, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even... To death, Stay here and watch. And he went a little, little farther and fell on the ground and prayed, watch this, that if, if it were possible that this hour might pass from him, and he said, Abba, Father. Was that sound familiar? All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Remarkable, isn't it? Jesus cried out in prayer. Do you know He knew like nobody knew that He was coming to the place where He was going to do what He came to do. He came to die. He came to be crucified, but yet right at the threshold of walking through that door, of laying down His life for you and I, He stops, he pauses, and in his humanity, he says, Father, you can do anything. And because I know you can do anything and nothing's impossible for you, can I tender one more request? Just before I go and lay down on Calvary's Hill for a rebel like me, if there's another way, could you get me out of this? Let this cup pass from me. That's remarkable. Think about this. He appealed to the Father in the same way that the Holy Spirit graces us to appeal to Him. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that we received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out what? Abba, Father. After He made that appeal in His humanity, He didn't want to die. Remember, Jesus took on human flesh. He was fully God and He was fully man. And in His request to take this cup away from me, after affirming that all things are possible, we see Him in His humanity. We get a picture of His humanity. He's saying, God, there's another way. Let this cup pass from me. What was that cup? He's going to drink the wrath of God over mine and your sin. Now here's where it applies to you and I. We can easily pray that. I've prayed that, and so have you. Father, Daddy, I understand that I'm in the middle of this circumstance. I'm in the middle of this situation. I've been called to forgive somebody that I'm really upset at. I've been called to stay in a marriage that I'm miserable in. I've been called to stay in a job where I absolutely loathe every single minute. But you have me here. But can I ask you this? If it were possible, could you get me out of this? Could you get me out of this? We don't need any help at all praying that. Do we need help praying that? I don't. I don't need any help. I said, God, I got it from here. That's Jesus in His humanity. It just shows you that He did become a man. But He did not come in human flesh. He came in the likeness of human flesh. His flesh was sinless. Mine is sinful. So is yours. So the reason he was able to move on and pray the second part of the prayer was because his humanity and his divinity met to accomplish the perfect will of God. And he went on and prayed the complete prayer that you and I often leave out. And when he said, all things are possible, take this cup away from me, we stop right there. But what did he do? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will that's how the Holy Spirit prays for you right there. That's how the Holy Spirit prays for you. The Holy Spirit prays the prayer in that prayer that's after the semicolon. And the Holy Spirit steps in and says, You know what? You have weaknesses, son. I know what they are. I'm very familiar with them, as a matter of fact, because I experienced them on earth. I know what your weaknesses are. I know your frame. I don't expect more out of you than you can deliver. God doesn't expect more from you than you can deliver because He knows you can deliver nothing to Him. He has no expectations for the flesh. You can't work through it. He said, well, you know what? Here's what I'm going to take up. I'm going to intercede to the Father with words that can't be uttered according to His perfect will that you stay in there. I am praying for you. Did you know that we have Jesus at the Father's right hand praying for us and we have the Holy Spirit making intercession for us so both of them are interceding for us? And He moves to pray on your behalf the second part of the prayer that's after the semicolon. He says, this is what you and I say. Father, I'm saved. Have a Father, I know it. I'm adopted. I believe that. I'm learning more about that. I believe it. But here's what I want to ask you. The pain has come to, it's, it's, it's become too intense. This is bizarre. This is too radical. It, it, it's going too far. And I'm asking you, because all things are possible for you, that you would remove this from me. And we're all cool with that. But then the Holy Spirit takes over and says, No, Father. Nevertheless, not Lindsay's will, but Your will be done. And we're sustained. That goes back to perseverance. See, that's the strength to persevere. It comes from Him. And it's it's validated by the prayers of the Holy Spirit who petitions the Father for us to enjoy it. The strength to persevere. Because you know what? When Jesus did that, then He went to the cross. He said, I'm going to a sheep, as a sheep to the slaughter and while on the cross he did things that I know God's going to do through even Pastor Bruce even right now in front of the thief who converted Pat. he did things in front of the thief who converted that showed his character and nature to him because dear ones we've said this before people do not get converted by watching you live People get converted by watching you die. And that thief watched Christ die. He watched him say to scores of people, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He took care of his mother and saw to it that her future was secure. While he was on the cross, dying for me and you. You could tell while he was up there, he wasn't thinking of himself. He was only thinking of God's glory and the love that God has for people. That was it. And doing his will. That had so taken root in the life of the Apostle Paul. And that was such a reality in his life that he realized that the suffering that he had come into in the Christian life was ordained by God. It was mediated by God. It is totally in God's control. And it is reflective of the redemptive work of God's Son on the cross. And God uses it to show His Son to others. And that had so taken root in the Apostle Paul's life He was so done. He was so dead. He was so cooked by this time. The Apostle Paul was gone. He'd long since died. I hope, boy, I'd love for that to be said of me one day. i long since died. Boy, I just, oh man, to to my sorriness and self-centeredness and self-preservation nature. And he said, you know what, he had so died that he comes to the end of Romans chapter 8, moves into Romans chapter 9, and says something that if it weren't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. If this wasn't in the Bible, I would not believe this. I mean it. I, I flat wouldn't. I would call him a liar. i said, say, you're a liar. I, I understand that your faith is radical, and I understand that God's got a hold of you, but you just lied about that. But it's in the Bible, and because it's in the Bible, and because it's so radical, we know it to be true. But look at the place. That patient endurance through suffering had brought the Apostle Paul. It had brought him to such a place of love that he was willing to say this in Romans chapter 9 verse 1. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. He has to give a qualifier to say, listen to me now. I know what you're about to hear. You're going to think I'm lying. But I'm here to tell you now. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness. And also... Bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. You see what he said here? Let me tell you something. Let me underline this. First of all, I'm going to give you a qualifier. I promise I'm not lying. My conscience is clear when I say this. And the Holy Spirit validates it because He included it in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit wrote it. If it meant the salvation of my Jewish nation, the ones I love so dear, if it meant their salvation, I would be willing to go to hell for them. Now watch that. I'd die for my children. Most of you would. That doesn't make me some special father. Most fathers in here, almost every father in here, probably every father in here, every father in here, somebody came in here and said, it's either you or your son or your daughter. You'd say, take me. Wouldn't think twice about it. I know where I'm headed. I love my children at least as best I can, and you do too but would you go to hell for one of your children? Knowing what that meant. When he said, I'll be accursed, that means anathema. That's the word anathema. It means damned to hell. That's what that word means. The Apostle Paul, of all people, would know what it meant. He knew what that meant. That meant eternal separation For God in hell, for the people who gathered together, 40 of them, and took a vow that they would not eat or drink anything until they had killed him. And he said, for those people, if it meant their salvation, I would go to hell. The Apostle Paul was dead. And Jesus was alive in him. Because Christ said this, when you were without strength, ungodly sinners who were my enemies, I died for you. Let me tell you something right now. I got way too much of me left in me. I know I do. Way too much of me left in me. And i tell you how to ensure that you keep what is in you left in you. You try to wiggle out of suffering and tribulation and trials. You try to excuse it away. You become resentful in the middle of ones you can't change. You start resenting other people and what you think they're doing to you. I'm going to tell you something right now. Nobody can keep you from the place of communion except you. I can't keep you from going and neither can anybody else. It's only you that can keep you from going there. And that's the outcome to get in the crucible. That's Christ's likeness. That was Christ who said that. Because listen, dear ones, Jesus hung on the cross from 9 o'clock in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. For the first three hours it was light. For the second three hours it was darkness. And an eternal, eternity worth of hell was imposed on Him while He was on there for six hours. So Jesus did go and suffer the wrath of hell for you and I. If the Apostle Paul goes to hell, nobody gets saved. If you and I go to hell, nobody gets saved. But Jesus suffered hell and all the elect get saved. Hallelujah to His name. I going to tell you something right now. God loves people and Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He did. When you have, when we get up, when we get to the place of the Apostle Paul where we say, you know what, and we can get there, if we patiently endure in a trial, then we'll lay it down too. We'll lay it down too and say, God, you know what? I know where I'm headed, my future is secure whatever you take me through, if it's working redemptively to reflect your redemptive activity in your son so that people are brought to you, then have your way because you deserve to be worshipped. You deserve to be glorified. You deserve to have another worshipper recruited so he can really worship you in spirit and in truth. You deserve it. And he does, dear ones. He does. Amen? I suppose that, that might be the most radical statement I have read in the entire Bible Is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. That is out there. But you know what? That isn't out there in Christianity. That's the normal Christian life. If we let Jesus have his way, does this not give rise to how foul and how rotten and how deceitful and how damnable and how worthy of only judgment the flesh really is? Dear ones, in the middle of your trial, the Holy Spirit's praying for you. Everything after the semicolon. He's there. He's praying for you. Interceding for you. According to your weaknesses and mine. Jesus at the Father's right hand praying for us. Patiently endure. Find God in the middle of it. Come to appropriate by faith that God is sovereign over it. And in His sovereignty, the Holy Spirit is praying for you according to the will of God for you. To work redemptively through your lives to strengthen the body of Christ and recruit worshipers to His holy name. Hallelujah to His name. Brian's coming to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll search our hearts, see if there's any anxious thought or offensive way in us. Lead us into the way everlasting thankful that You are in charge of everything. You are sovereign. You really are. We don't use that word loosely. God, we want to be more informed of how big and powerful that word is. We're thankful, Lord, that we can rejoice and exult and leap for joy over the tribulations that come our way, the ones that we've gone through and the ones that are yet to come. Because You are working in the midst of them to conform us into the image of Your Son. You're working in the midst of them to reflect the redemptive blood of Your Son as a witness to the Gospel. We pray, Father, now as You let us sit at Your table, not because we squeaked in and came in unawares, but chosen in You before the foundation of the world, those You foreknew, You predestined, And those you predestined, you called. And those you called, you justified. And those you justified, you glorified to sit at your table. That we sit there with a spirit of humility and deep abiding gratitude and awe over the grace and mercy of a just God who purchased our right through His Son's blood to sit there. Thank You for this act of worship that we're about to participate in. And thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your obedience, perfect obedience to the Father's will to make us participators. You're sweet.